going to explore this together as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we're coming to you, what we want to do is to explore the richness of your word, but not leave it there, and then apply it to the issues of our hearts. The issue of the heart is something we bring before you each and every Sunday, but really each and every day. You are the spiritual cardiologist. You examine the heart's condition. You see what needs to be addressed. And on mornings like this, we take your word and address it. So give us great wisdom. person that comes into one of these morning services today could be a secularist, could be a religionist, but they could share something in common and not know Jesus as Savior. And what we want to do is get beyond the externals and go for the internals. We want Father to be able to relay truth in a timely way to our hearts today. So Father, in the ways in which you've constructed us, mind, body, and soul, praying that once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. So Father, we've come here once again to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. What does this symbol that appears on the screen mean to you? There you have it. Nike. Now what's interesting is that the symbol for Nike comes from the Greek word that we are using this morning, not once, not twice, but three times, nakao, for which we get the idea of overcoming, to conquer, to defeat, to be victorious. The very same word was used in John chapter 16, verse 33, where Jesus, as the Apostle John records In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome, I have Nike'd the world. So anytime you see an Air Jordan, you're thinking Nike at this point. What's interesting to me is that the Nike company takes its name from Nike, but not from this Greek word found in your scriptures, but from the Greek goddess of mythology, Greek mythology, Nike, which I find somewhat amusing, you see, because eventually the Greek kingdom was overcome by the Romans. And so Nike was Nike'd. In other words, the overcomer was overtaken. Now, you and I live in a culture where people feel as though they are overwhelmed. They are overtaken. But what we've got to do and bear in mind here is that Jesus Christ, in the Gospel of John, in the upper room, Jesus wrote, Jesus is recorded as saying, and the Apostle John records it, Take heart, I have overcome the world. You're going to find that same word used not only in the Gospel of John throughout this epistle, 
but periodically throughout the book of Revelation that John penned as well. We're in the hard times of tribulationary experience. What God is doing is he's equipping people to be overcomers. Now, what I want to do with you this morning is to explore how that symbol relates to the Christian experience. And what we're going to do is to draw three distinguishing marks here, the believer, as it relates to the way in which Jesus Christ has uttered those words, take heart, I have overcome, I have Nike'd the world. And the first is flowing out of verse 1 and verse 2, and we're going to put it like this, number one, that because of the new birth, Christians are overcomers by the love that God expects from us. And we're starting with that idea of the new birth. So you pick it up now as we continue on in our study of 1 John that we began in January, and we're up to chapter 5, verse 1, and here you find this opening phrase, everyone, not someone, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Let's now camp on that phrase for just a minute. Notice that it begins with everyone who believes. The word believes here is in the present tense. Carries it is something which is an ongoing activity in your life and my life. But I want you to do now is connected to that next verb, has been born of God. The phrase has been born of God is not in the present tense. It's in the perfect tense, which means then that has been born of God is something that took place in the past that has relevance for the present. In other words, the result of having been born of God is faith in Jesus Christ, not vice versa. The Greek pulls this out for you and for me. The result of having been born of God is believing in Jesus the Christ. So now, we make certain we don't put the cart before the horse. Everyone who believes, now you carry on that Jesus is the Christ, and your mind goes back to that incredible conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples, you know, you know. Because it involved Peter, John was listening in. They're buddies, you know. And so in Matthew chapter 16, he said, but who do you say that I am? Jesus has a way of getting personal. Has he done that with you? Are you doing that with him? It's a question you've got to answer. He's asking you, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, I want to ask you another question. Is Where did the seed of thought begin in Peter's mind? Well, Peter had a brother. Peter's brother was Andrew. And Peter's brother, we are told in John's Gospel account, found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Christ. 
never underestimate those private conversations you have with people about Jesus. Parent, child, grandparent, grandchild, brother, sister, friends, somebody you're dating right now, single married, who are co-worker. Long before Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Andrew, his brother, whispered, so to speak, into Simon's ears, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Don't overlook small beginnings. Don't underestimate one-on-one conversations. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, as a result of all this, we look back to the cause of all this, has been born again, born of God. So no matter how many times I've said it, I'm going to say it again. It is so critically important. The Apostle John repeats it again and again. If you are born once, you will die twice. Once physically, second time eternally. Flip side. But if you are born twice, once physically, the second time spiritually, you die only once, physically. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. And this is what George Whitfield had to grapple with, you see, one of the great evangelists in history. He was a religionist. Maybe some of us are coming out of an incredibly religious background, and yet it didn't do enough for us, you see. Well, Whitfield would have understood that. His biographer, Arnold Dalimar, tells us that at the age of 16, Whitfield became incredibly convicted of sin, tried everything possible to erase his guilt through religious activity. Here's what he said. I fasted for 36 hours twice a week. I prayed formal and informal prayers several times a day. Almost starved myself to death during Lent, yet only felt more miserable. Then, by God's grace, I met Charles Wesley, who put a book in my hand which showed me from the scriptures that I must be born again or be eternally lost. So finally, by the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, Whitfield came to understand Jesus' words in John 3. He believed and was saved. And after he became a minister of the gospel, he spoke at least a thousand times on the subject, you must be born again. Now there's your starting point here. And so out of this rebirth comes this budding faith. Everyone who believes, that's present tense, that Jesus is the Christ. Think Andrew whispering into Peter's ear has been born of God, perfect tense, passed with a present implication. And then he says, and that's not all. You're still in this one. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now for the second time, he emphasizes this whole idea of the matter of being born again. But this time in relationship, you see, to this whole matter of loving. In other words, because of the rebirth that is expressing itself in new faith, the connecting to this new faith is a newfound love that you have for other people that impacts others for the cause of Jesus Christ. Dr. Wes Selinger, who's been an ER doctor, writes, I've spent long hours in the ICU watching anguished people, listening to the urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without your companion of so many years? The intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world. And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one's rude. Class distinctions melt away. What we find is that everybody's pulling for one another. In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. Pride, vanity, vanish. The universe is focused on the medical report that's forthcoming. If only it will show improvement. If only this person will overcome their circumstances. Everyone knows that loving someone else at this moment is what life is all about, the ICU. And when I walk out of that room, I see a room known as this world in critical condition. Now what God does at this point is that he takes this person who is not merely born once, but born twice, who as a result is expressing faith in the Christ and now demonstrates this kind of faith through the way in which he or she loves not only God, but loves others. And you see the intersection of the vertical and the horizontal at this point. Everyone in verse 1 who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Which means now that in the Christian circles, the world has an opportunity to see how we are to function in this ICU universe that we find ourselves in, this idea of biblical love. Someone put it this way, I love everybody. Well, some I, I love to be around. And some I love to avoid. And others... I would love to punch in the face. I love everybody. In the microcosm of relational dynamics, the disciples would have to work this out in the presence of Jesus because eventually they're going to have to work this out with Jesus ascending into heaven. And so he is emphasizing the Apostle John here, not once but twice in that opening verse, how the starting point is the rebirth 
from this rebirth is this new dynamic of faith. Out of this new dynamic of faith is this new dynamic of love. And so he inches us forward at this point, and you make your way into verse 2, and you read, and by this we know. Oh, he loves that word, doesn't he? Again and again and again throughout this epistle, he is stressing the idea of knowing, the sense of certainty, not merely possibility. And so we get beyond this possibility thinking that so many people would push on us, and we deal with certainty thinking that is found in the scriptures at this point. By this we know, by this we know what? That we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, which reminds us once again that the depth of our love for God is revealed by the degree of our obedience to God. And our obedience to God is rooted first in our faith in Christ. But our faith in Christ is rooted first in the rebirth that has taken place within our hearts. And when we get this sequence lined up, then we begin to better understand how it is that we can impact others who are hurting so desperately in this fallen world. Ernest Gordon, it's World War II time. We used an excerpt last week, another one this week, through the Valley of the Kwai. He writes, We found ourselves on the same track with several carloads of Japanese wounded after the Kwai prison camp. These unfortunate ones were on their own, lacking medical care. No longer fit for action in Burma, they had been packed into railway cars which had been returned to Bangkok. And they were in a state of shock. And I had never seen such people who were so medically needy combined with filthiness cloaking their bodies. The mud, the blood, the excrement. It was apparent why the Japanese at this point were so cruel to their prisoners. If they did not care for their own, why should they care for us? He writes as a POW. The wounded looked at us forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages, waiting for impending death. They had been discarded as expendable, the refuse of war. They were the enemy. They were more cowed and defeated than we had ever been. And then it happened. Without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs took out part of their rations, rag or two, and with water canteens in their hands, went over to the Japanese train. Our guards tried to prevent us, shouting, no gutka, no gutka, but we ignored them, knelt down by the enemy to give water and food to clean and bind up their wounds. Grateful cries of arigato, arigato, which means thank you, followed us when we left. I regarded my colleagues with wonder. Eighteen months ago, they would have joined readily in the destruction of our captors had they fallen into their hands. 
Now these same officers were dressing the enemy's wounds. What happened? We had experienced a moment of grace there in those blood-stained railway cars. God had broken in and given us the will to obey his command, quote, Thou shalt love. Unquote. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. And who are these children of God? Well, John himself would remind us of his gospel. We're in chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. You see how all this ties together? And now we're inching ourselves forward in this text. And so because of the new birth, Christians are overcomers by the love God expects from us that's tied to the faith we have for him, which is rooted in the new birth that God has produced in us. But now we move forward from verses 1 and 2 into verse 3, and here now is that second distinguishing mark of overcomers. Secondly, because of the new birth, Christians are overcomers by the obedience God requires of us. Verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now let's begin to break this down. This is the love of God. The Greek word here, love, is agape. It carries with the idea of a sacrificial love. It's costly, not cheap. It's rooted in the second birth not the first birth. It's shaped by faith, not unbelief. Now, you've got to look at the various relational dynamics you find yourself in because sometimes God will sovereignly place you and me in hard places or among hard people to love. It's costly. Not cheap. Self-giving. Not self-serving. Rooted in the second birth. Not the first birth. It's a shaper and a demonstrator faith. Faith in Christ. Not in self. For this is the love of God. And then we remind ourselves once again that the measure, the means, the evaluation, the depth of our love for God is measured by the degree of our obedience to God, rooted in faith, which is rooted in rebirth. He doesn't leave you here. That word keep, that idea here that is found here in verse 3, 
carries with the idea to guard, to preserve, to watch over. But then he adds this. It's astounding. His commandments, his commandments are not burdensome. The moral law is not a burden that we carry. It's not a weight that wears us down. It's shaped for you not against you. And your mind immediately goes back in terms of this matter of the burden to something that once again the Apostle John will have been listening into when Jesus said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Maybe this is you this morning. And I'll give you rest. Now, using an agricultural imagery, he continues on, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest in your souls, not rest for your bodies. Something deeper, rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. How do you understand this? Dr. Paul Braden, who was a physician in India, working with lepers, pens these thoughts. I worked as a surgeon mainly with leprosy patients. Leprosy is a disease of the nerves, and its victims do not feel pain. As I treated infected ulcers and shortened fingers and toes, I had to work backwards to figure out what particular stress cause those tissues to break down. Hundreds of patients had damaged their feet by wearing shoes or sandals that had a tiny rough spot protruding. Step after step, that rough spot ground against the skin, yet these patients' defective pain cells did not warn them of danger. To my surprise, I learned that most of the damage came from small repetitive stresses like this. Not more obvious stresses like bruises, cuts, or burns. Any gentle stress when applied to a single spot repetitively would destroy living tissue. A bed sore, the clearest proof. An insensitive patient would get terrible ulcers just by lying still on the same pressure spot. Whereas a person who feels pain will toss and turn through the night in response to messages of fatiguing nerve cells. There's grace in the tossing and the turning in the midst of the night. Conversely, too little stress also affects living tissue. Cells need exercise. Without it, they will atrophy. These principles can easily be understood in the way in which we understand what Jesus taught in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. For you see, I learned in India not only how to practice medicine, but I also worked in a carpentry shop along the way. I fashioned yokes. If I put a flat, uncarved piece of wood on an ox's neck, use it to put a chart 
caught very quickly, pressure sores will break out on that animal's neck, and he'll be useless. A good yoke must be formed to the shape of an ox's neck. It should cover a large area of skin to distribute the stresses widely. It should also be smooth, rounded, polished, with no sharp edges, so that no one point will endure unduly high stress. So, if I succeed in my workshop, the yoke I will make will fit snugly around the ox's neck and cause him no discomfort. He can, call, he can haul heavy loads every day for years, and his skin will remain perfectly healthy with no pressure sores. And when I worked this through, I understood then what Jesus meant. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And the Apostle John puts it this way. His commandments are not burdensome. Now, religionists, like the Pharisees, created burdens that didn't fit. But what God in his grace has done through Jesus Christ is to not only save us by grace alone, through faith alone, but then we live in obedience to him as a result. And that obedience is directed towards the moral law, and the moral law fits, and it's not a burden. Rather, it's a blessing. Once you work that through, now you have come through the second of the three distinguishing marks here of overcomers. But now the third gets unpacked in verses 4 and verse 5 because thirdly, because of the new birth, Christians are overcomers by the faith that God instills in us. But what you and I are going to have to do now, we're going to have to connect the dots because he's got a closed system here. He begins and he ends the same way. In verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Draw a line now from that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God down to verse 4 and into 5, where you pick it up. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, if you carried a New American Standard with you this morning, that would be an interesting translation to use at the beginning of verse 4 because really it's neuter it should read for whatever in other words it's not so much the person as it is the power so he is empowering you with faith because of the second birth so due to this empowerment for everyone or literally because of that whatever, that neuter, that whatever, whenever approach. It leads them to this idea of the Nike moment of your life overcomes the world. Now you tie that together with what Jesus Christ said. 
In John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation. He's being honest with you at this point. But take heart. I have overcome the world. It doesn't say you have overcome the world or you will overcome the world. Notice your starting point there. He's talking death resurrection. I have overcome the world. Now you bridge the gospel of John to the epistle of John. Because as we've studied in 1 John throughout 2017, when we got to chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, believers are said to overcome the evil one. And then when we made our way into chapter 4, verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, speaking of the opposition to God. Now, what we want to say at this point is that the outcome at the cross of Jesus Christ, the outcome produces the overcoming within the hearts of you and me. When you and I can establish within our hearts that the outcome has been secured by Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, the outcome produced by Christ produces the sense of overcoming within the heart of the believer. So now you and I can embrace this, but it carries one further thought. You and I are positioned as overcomers in a world where people feel so overtaken. What do you say to that person who is so overwhelmed by life, overtaken, whether by the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin, that will minister to them at their own point of need? You take everything we've covered so far in these verses. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You're not overtaken by the world. You're not overwhelmed by the world. And this is the Nike. This is that symbol etched on your soul. This is the Nike that has overcome the world, literally, the faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. So now what does he do for you? What does he do for me at this point? What he does then is that he wraps this with a question. Brilliant. Who is it that overcomes? Who is it that Nikes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And now you take the believe in verse 5 and you loop it back because you've got a closed system here to how it began in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. To the end of verse 5 the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And you say, but I know, Gary, I know that the Apostle John has a way of connecting the Epistle of John to the Gospel of John, and this sounds vaguely familiar. Well, you're, you're, you're right on. Because in John chapter 20, verse 31, the Apostle John, issuing his purpose statement, Stated, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is 
the Christ, the Son of God. And how does he connect all this? In 1 John 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, in verse 5, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And now you pull all this together and you see the love that God expects from us, the obedience that God requires of us, the faith that God instills in us as a result of this new birth. You are an overcomer, not one who is overtaken. And when you look at that, you've got Nike, your symbol, pressed on your eternal soul. Let's stand together. So, Father, I want to start this morning with the person who feels so overtaken. Maybe they're overwhelmed by the fact that they're trying to pay the penalty for sin. Take them to the cross of Jesus Christ. Show them that who he is, specially designed for what he did, dying in our place for our sins. We're praying the Holy Spirit produces life that yields faith, that produces obedience, allowing them to be able to see I can be an overcomer because Jesus overcame death via resurrection. Father, for those who know you, who love you, help us now to minister effectively into the, in this world where people are so overwhelmed. And may we bring this good news of who Christ is and what he's done to their hearts. It fits, and it ministers to the soul. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.